So I'm sorry I broke Debbie. <laughs> um, whenever, whenever Debbie comes and she leads worship when I'm speaking, I, I think she just like throws that song in, that Give Me Jesus song, because that is, that is the song that ministers so deeply to my soul. And I, I've told her that she cannot die until after I die because, uh, and that's a direct order, um, a deep, deep request because I want her to sing that at my funeral. And um, so you guys are all witnesses now. And I'll have to pay her more. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. Yes, we'll have to pay her more. Um, but I, I just, hey, if you guys, uh, we were talking, and we were talking about funeral music yesterday at lunch or something, I don't know. But um, I strongly recommend if there's a message that has been really deep in your heart, in your Christian walk, whether it's scripture or a song or a person or a testimony or a devotional piece, whatever it is, if it has spoken to you, get that in writing. Tell everybody. That, that as you leave this earth and they present your life to those who remain behind, that, that that's the message you want people to hear and to know about you. That that, and not just, just the song, but why the song, why that verse, why that, so that people will be able to cling to that little bit of hope after you're gone. Because do we, we don't really grieve, right, the people that, I mean, we grieve, but we grieve differently the people we know who died in Jesus than we grieve the people who died without him. It's a different grieving. When we grieve those who are lost and uh, who, who've lost their lives and have gone to be with the Lord, we miss them. We long for them. Like we should be longing for heaven now. But when we lose somebody that's close to us that never knew Jesus, it's a groaning that is so deep in our souls because we know that we have forever parted ways. And I think that that is the message. I think that's what the gospel writers were feeling when they were writing their gospels. And I think that's the message that the apostles and the feelings that they were having when they were writing their letters to the churches. They had a deep groaning within them for those that would perish without knowing the truth. How lost, how lost and how dark the world is without the light of the gospel. You know, I know that Matt has been speaking in the morning about Martin Luther, and um, I've been purposely not listening <laughs> to him because I don't, I don't want to be, um, I want to hear God's voice in what I share. And, I, and if I'm repeating things that Matt is sharing, I don't want to feel like I shouldn't share it because he already said it. And if he's 
sharing things in a different way than I'm sharing them. I don't want to know that either because I have to share and be obedient to what God is showing me and asking me to share. And one of the things that I've learned from doing Bible study is that when you read something one time, you go, isn't that lovely? What a nice verse or what a nice word. That was a good encouragement. You hear it the second time and you go, hmm, wow, wonder what that means. If you hear it the third time, you better be sitting up and paying attention because God is speaking to you. So if God is saying something to you over and over and over through the other Bible studies you're attending this week or in the services at night, get alone with God and say, what, what is happening? What are you doing, Lord? So, you know, we've all heard the creation story from the time we started in nursery school, right? That in the beginning was God, and God spoke, and it happened. Genesis 1, right? I mean, we've all heard that, right? Genesis 1. Then he goes, you know, through that creation process, he creates everything we need. Today he creates this so that it's present for tomorrow. And on that day, he creates what is necessary for the next day, and so on and so on and so on. And every day he says, that was good. Good job, God. And he likes it. And then he gets to the last creation. And he says, now I'm going to do something really, really cool. I'm going to make man in our image. The Trinity is present. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all present, knitting together the first man, breathing into him the breath of life, ordaining him with a mission and a purpose. He stands him up, and he gives him a job. <laughs> Name everything. Work the garden. Be a steward over all that I'm giving you. Put into submission all of creation under your feet. Man was created to work. It was a big job. So he needed a boss, so he sent him a wife. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's, that's terrible. I shouldn't have said that. Bad me. He needed a helpmate. He needed someone that could come alongside of him and be his partner in life and work side by side and do what God had called them to do, right? Unfortunately, the work had to become difficult because they did the one thing that they were asked not to do, and they did it. And they ate from the one tree that they were asked not to eat from. And that is what we call original sin. We started out, creation started out with one law. One law. First John tells us that the law reveals our sin. That the law itself is not sin. But the breaking of the law reveals our sin. So, the sin nature became exposed 
was released, happened, was introduced. They had no sin nature before that. They could have done anything, gone and touched anything, eaten of anything, said anything to God, and not had any fear. But they failed at the one law that he gave them, and it was sin. James, yesterday we were looking at it, and it said what? If you commit murder but not adultery, you're guilty. If you, kid, if you commit adultery but not murder, you're guilty. If you commit blasphemy, you're guilty. So at some point, God gave them more laws, right? And he did that. We see the laws that were given. He gave them the Ten Commandments to Moses, and they had ten they went from 1 to 10. But there were more people, so there was more opportunity to break those laws, right? So God said, you know, back in, uh, back in Genesis 3, I'm, I, made, I made them a promise that said someday I would send my son and he would take care of this messiness for them. But until that time happens, I need I need to give them something to do so that they remember that they've sinned and that there's nothing they can do on their own to fix that. So he came up with the Passover lamb as a visual reminder to them that something had to take their place, that blood had to be spilled because death had entered at the fall. And somehow they even found a way to make that corrupt because they either didn't keep it or they didn't follow the rules, the laws that God had about what kind of lamb. It had to be perfect, without blemish. It had all these things. And that was so that when Jesus came, they would recognize him. So when Jesus came, they failed to recognize him and give him the position that was his. But he, he willingly submitted himself to his father's authority and became that lamb for us. That sacrifice then becomes our salvation when we what? We believe. Now here's where Martin Luther says that he thinks that James was uh, a heretic because he believes that James is teaching that you have to have the works of the law in order to have salvation. But James is not saying that. We're going to look at that this morning. Where did we, we left off yesterday at uh, chapter 2. James 2, verses 13, uh, verse 13, right? And I've quoted a little bit of that. Am I mirroring? Okay, so. James chapter 2. <clears throat> This is, I'm, I'm just going to tell you just for your own benefit, if, you're, if you don't have an app on your uh, tablet or your phone or whatever, a great one is called Takarta. 
and it has many free uh, Bible, you know, versions and stuff. I'm using the Takarta that has the New American Standard Bible with the Strong's Concordance attached to it. So we're going to use that this morning so that we can navigate through some of this. T E <laughs> C A R T A, Takarta. And if I pronounce it wrong, oh well. Right? That's right. So, but I want to back up. Because starting at verse 8, 2-8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps... I just lost my place. Who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit murder, but you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak and, and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Wait a minute. Royal law? Law of liberty. What is James talking about? He's talking about the difference between the requirement of the Old Testament law, fulfilling the Ten Commandments, participating in the Passover, all of the feasts, all of those things that are necessary to overcome sin, versus the law of liberty. The law of liberty. We are no longer under the bondage of the law, but we are set free in Christ because of what he has done for me. James is not contradicting Paul and other New Testament writers over salvation. But he is saying that if you are a saved person, if you are a person who has said, yes, I believe in Jesus, that you are going to do the works that Jesus has asked us to do. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is with, without clothing and in need of daily food and one says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Faith is dead when it is by itself because faith is a verb. Verbs act. They're action. They're in movement. They, they're, they're not an adjective. Right? An adjective is descriptive. This faith is a verb. It takes action. It's not, it's not stagnant. It's moving forward. It's ongoing. It has evidence. There's proof to it. 
But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Yep. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. We talked about perfected earlier this week. Perfected is mature, complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He has said that now at least twice in this passage, that faith without works is dead. And he gives reasons why. Because you can say you believe, but if you say you believe but you don't do anything about it, do you really believe? You can believe whatever you want. People are maybe listening to this podcast, they can't see me. So they can believe whatever they want about me, right? They might believe that I'm a, I always tell, I tell this to youth groups all the time, you can believe that I'm a 300-pound, six-foot-tall basketball player if you want. That doesn't make it true. When you believe and your faith is activated, it means that you believe that what the Word of God says is true and that you hold fast to that and that as a result of that, you're going to operate in faith because your faith is placed in the character of the one that you're placing their faith, your faith in. So what are they trusting? What are they putting their faith in? They're putting their faith in the justification that Christ provided, not the justification that Abraham provided. But he's using Abraham and Rahab as examples because there's nothing else written. There's no other scriptures. He has to use a point of reference for them that they all understand as Jewish believers. So it wouldn't do them any good, wouldn't do James any good at this point in writing a letter if he was using New Testament references. Because there are no New Testament references. He predates most of the Gospels. <laughs> he has no, he can't say, if you would refer to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, you would see that Mary. Because that's not written yet. Everything at this point, all of the New Testament scriptures are oral and yet to be written. He is 
the reference. So he has to do like Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He has to refer them back and start them back at Genesis 1-1 and walk them all the way through the Old Testament, get them to all the major points of reference, opening their eyes bit by bit, step by step, so that they could see how it was all woven together. When you say to a Jewish believer, Abraham, our father, what do you think they immediately think of? What are some things you think of when you think of, because now, you know, we're grafted in. So what do you think of when I say Abraham, the father? Faith. Linda, what do you think? Abraham. I say Abraham. What do you think? He was a friend of God. What else do we think or know about Abraham? Isaac offered as a sacrifice. What else? The father of the Hebrews, the beginning of the nation, right? What else do you think of? Had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I told you, you can't give me a word. I'll start singing. Okay, so... That and what else? Righteousness, justification, circumcision, faith, circumcision. Ouch. Circumcision was the sticking point (laughs) for the New Testament Jews because they were arguing about that. Specifically, James is very subtly mentioning the act of the works which identified you because your circumcision identified you as being Jewish, Hebrew, a follower, a faithful one, part of the chosen people. That work, that work specifically identified you and, and they claimed that as their heritage. They, they claimed all of that. This became an issue, didn't it? Do you remember this? We talked about this briefly. If we go back to Acts, chapter 15. Come on. If we go back to Acts, chapter 15, remember um, who was it that had just started ministering to the Gentiles? Paul was has a new ministry to the Gentiles. And the Jewish people among them are saying, okay, now if you're going to be a part of us, you've got to do all these things, and these are all the rules, and you'll be good. And so it goes to the council at Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. When you see custom of Moses, they're saying according to the law. Because often law and Moses are interchangeable. So according to the law, according to Moses, you cannot be saved. They're attaching a work to salvation. 
And we think that possibly the letter of James was written right around the same time that this was happening at the council. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. We see Paul and Barnabas submitting to the authority of the Jerusalem council, and they're seeking their wisdom. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the detail of the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So they're encouraging, and Paul never stops working. The man was tireless. My goodness, when he was under house arrest for two years and all he had to do was write, he must have been grateful that his feet got to be up. Like, think about the miles he put on his shoes. I mean, that's a lot. He, what would he have done if he'd had one of those watches that track your steps? <laughs> It'd be in the book of Numbers. Ah, so bad this morning, you guys. Ah, that was a groaner. When they arrived at Jerusalem, <laughs> when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church there and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that we need to stop and recognize that there were some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed and stood up. God saved the most legalistic, some of the most legalistic people among them. They were saved. But what happens here? Their legalism wants to creep into grace, doesn't it? The legalism of what has to happen and what shouldn't happen creeps in. Do you think that can happen to us in our churches, that we preach grace, grace, God's grace, we sing it, we teach it, we preach it, we put in our faith in it the minute we say, but you should, or you can't, or you must. That's dangerous language to start using because that is a, that's a pharisaical mindset. The apostles and the elders came to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, I can imagine can you imagine the two sides? I mean, this, this probably was not a fi the five-minute conversation that we're getting a picture of. I'm sure this was heated. I am sure that they wanted to break into committee and then to have a committee for the committee to oversee the committee and that they set up the hospitality group to bring in the coffee and donuts because this took a long time for them to figure it out. And then Peter stood up and said to them, you know, Peter's just a hero of mine. I just got to say, he's never afraid to just speak. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the, the, knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The Holy Spirit was not withheld from the Gentiles who were not circumcised just because they were or were not circumcised. The Holy Spirit was not withheld. They got it 
just like we got it. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put to God to the test by placing the neck of the disciples on the neck of the disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Saved by grace. Because you believe, you have faith, that faith is activated and it does works, good works. Not works of the law, because even Abraham our father even though he worked to fulfill the law, the law, fell short of the law. But because his heart was willing to follow the law, he was declared righteous. He was justified by his faith. His faith was proven by the work that he did. James does not contradict Paul on the matter of justification. James supports what Paul is going to start writing and teaching and preaching because Paul came to James and the council and got this word. It was affirmed and confirmed through James who was part and Peter who were part of this council. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then after they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With, the words of the pro- uh, with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. We're going into Old Testament again, aren't we? Because it's all they had. After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, Jesus' name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, I know it seems like James is giving them a law about the blood and the fornication. But this isn't about salvation. These rules about the blood and eating things strangled and and not eating the blood, not eating anything that was strangled, not fornicating, all those things, that's because those are things of holiness. Those are things that come into the body and contaminate the body. This was a cleanliness issue. This was about health. This was about being a good example. 
this was, you know, hey, you know, later we see, you know, the sheet comes down with Peter. You know, we hear the story about Peter and the sheet, and he says, yeah, you can eat all these things, and you can eat in the home of these unsaved people, and you can eat the meat. And basically they say, don't ask about the meat. <laughs> Go ahead and eat it. But that's not really what it's about, right? It's really about the Gentiles. But he's saying you don't want to eat the blood because the blood is the life of the animal. The blood is precious. And he's preventing them from dabbling in things that would be contrary to their faith. It's not law. It's holiness living. Today, we would say, um, avoid gluten. Cut back on your white sugars. Eat red meat only once a week. You know, are those laws? No, but we can get legalistic about those things. But they're for the health and the benefit of the body, for the purification, so that we have good health. Not that it's a law that saves us or makes us different than what we are. Because we are still saved by faith in Christ alone. So let's go back to James. Let's look at this phrase. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You know, we tend to, as people who have been in the church a long time, we like to throw out words like righteous, sanctification, justification, um, holiness, fellowship. Well, you know, that's church ease. And we get that because we read the scriptures and we're hearing that language right? Often people that are new to the faith or have never heard the faith and we start talking about sin versus righteousness, they get a glazed look that comes over their face and they go, oh, that's nice. My goodness, who do they think they are? Righteousness, justified, justification, sanctification. You know, we really should know what those things are so that we can explain them. Right? and live according to them. So let's look at, um, I want to look at those words a little bit. Let's look at reckoned. The word reckoned is to take an inventory that is an estimate to conclude. I, I kind of like the Thayer's definitions and how Thayer kind of um, gives you a little bit more on this program. Like if you had a Strong's and a Vines at home, you know, but who wants to carry around 50 pounds of books with you when you go? So this is really interesting because Thayer says that to reckon, which is really kind of a banking statement, you're going to reckon or reconcile an account, is to reckon, count, compute, calculate, count over, to take into account, make an account of. I mean, look at all these things that it says it is. To reckon inward, count up, or weigh the reasons, deliberate, by reckoning up all the reasons to gather or infer, to consider, take into account, weigh. I mean, like, look at all the words. That's a lot. So when we think about reckon, 
He was, it was reckoned to him. So it was put to his credit. He was put into a positive balance in his bank account. He was no longer in debt to God. He was reconciled. His debt was paid. He was no longer in debt for unrighteousness, but he was considered righteous. If we wanted to look at the word reckoned in uh, other parts of the New Testament, let's look at Romans, because that's always a great place to look, right? Yes. yes. Romans 3.28 for we maintain, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of law. His account for his faith is in the positive because he was justified by faith. His bank account is not in the negative with God. In Romans 4.3, and what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The following verse, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Oh my goodness. If you are working and working hard because you want to be good enough for God, you just keep going in the negative. A member of my family was dying of cancer. It was on my husband's side. And we went to visit. They had teenage daughters. And they had not been going to church through most of their marriage. Um, her uncle was a Methodist pastor in the upper, upper lower Michigan. And she was raised pretty much by him. And she... She knew God. She said, oh, I believe in God. Yep. I believe in God. And when she was diagnosed with her cancer, she said, April, I don't want to die because my work's not done. And I said, well, what work do you think you have to do? She said, I haven't finished my kids. I haven't finished raising my kids. How will I know if they turn out okay? I'm not done. I haven't worked. So we talked about that. We talked about how her girls would be okay. That she gave them, a, she gave them good moral upbringing. They were obedient to their parents, these girls were. And we visited again as death came closer. And now she couldn't get up out of bed. And she said, April, I don't want to die. And I said, I know. I said, what are you afraid of? 
She said, I don't think I've done enough. I don't think I worked hard enough. I could have done more. I should have done more. Will God know that I tried? Will God know? Will he, will he look at that? Will he see that? Even though sometimes I wasn't the nicest person, I felt bad after. And I love my family. I love my husband. I worked with the Girl Scouts. I volunteered at the school. We always volunteered as a family to work at the festivals, and we were in the public, and, you know, we, we tried to do good things and be good people. Do you think it was enough? Do you think I did enough, April? And I told her no. <laughs> because she didn't do the one and only thing she needed to do. I said, you have one task that you have neglected. I said, you need to trust Jesus. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to believe that the work that he did, the work that you know about from your childhood Sunday school years, that that work was enough. Would you like to pray and tell him that you love him and that you trust him? No. I think it's too late. April, I think it's too late. And I said, you are still breathing. It was so hard for her to get over the fact that she didn't have any strength left in her body to prove her faith. I left so broken, but I knew that she was more than broken. She was shattered. And it was just days later that we got the call that she had died. And we went up to that little country church in Gaylord, just north of Gaylord. A little tiny church. And the pastor began to preach and speak and share about her life. And he said, because she died on a Sunday morning, the church had come to pick up the girls to take them to church to go to Sunday school. They'd only been going since she'd been diagnosed. The church, somebody found out 
that she was sick, so the church started sending somebody. And she died at home in her husband's arms while the girls were in Sunday school. And he said, I want you guys to know that I saw her yesterday. And I shared the gospel with her. And she let me pray with her. And he said, I believe that we'll meet her again. I believe that she learned to trust Jesus as her Savior before she died. It took her last breath, practically, to come to that point. But from the moment she said yes to the Lord, even though there was almost 24 full hours of extreme pain and discomfort for her, in that moment that the last breath left her body, because I have faith in what Jesus Christ did, and I believe that his word is faithful and true, I believe that she left this earthly shell of a body that was broken and diseased and walked directly into the throne room in the presence of God, wearing her crown of life that she got to cast down before his throne. Victory to the last breath. Right? No opportunity to prove faith by works. No requirement to take a lamb to an altar to be slain on her behalf because that job was done for her. It was done for me. It was done for you. If you are thinking this morning, but I haven't worked hard enough, I haven't tried hard enough, I haven't done enough, I'm still worthless, I'm not good enough, I need to do more, I need to prove it, honey, those are the wrong kind of works that the Lord is looking for. Stop going in the negative in your account with God. He will bring your account into balance. He will wipe away the debt. You will be debt free the minute you say, yes, Lord Jesus. I trust you and in you alone for my salvation.